Well, look, Dad, your friend is building it. My friends, we were downtown driving around the new soccer stadium that is being built right here in St. Louis, Missouri, when my son Patrick yelled that out from the back seat of the car. Look, Dad, your friends are building it. He was referring to my friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies is proud to be a part of the team that is bringing Major League Soccer to America's first soccer capital right here in St. Louis, Missouri. As construction partners of the St. Louis City Stadium, they are looking forward for this project to be a place for entertainment, camaraderie, and passion for generations to come. You can learn more about that project and look what else they're building, Dad, by visiting them right now online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire, He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. It's coined as the great resignation. I'm sure you've heard of it. Millions of those living here in the United States and millions and millions more around the world are considering quitting their jobs in search of greater happiness, fulfillment, flexibility. These individuals are burned out and they feel as if they lack the growth opportunities to thrive where they are. Yet today's guest is going to remind all of us that you don't need to quit that job to find satisfaction, to find real joy, both at work and in life. You're going to hear today from Laurie Rudiman. She's a top career advisor, and she spent more than 20 years advocating for better employment experiences to increase retention rates. That's great. But maybe even more importantly for us tuning in today to elevate and improve not only our job satisfaction, but our life satisfaction. After a season of being uninspired and blaming others for her life, for her unhappiness, Laurie decided to take hold of her life, the good, the bad, and the downright ugly. She did this to transform both her present experiences, but also her future possibilities. Today, Laurie is going to share the framework to approach work in a smart and healthy manner and the tactical advice to champion your interest in order to create a life you actually love. So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do today. Whether you are part of those considering being part of the great resignation, or you're retired, or you're a student, or you're a sojourner in life, no matter where you are, this is an episode for you. I want you to grab your favorite Live Inspired journal, uncork your favorite pen, You'll need it over the next 45 minutes to take notes for this conversation. And let me give you the very first quote to write down. Here it is. Invest in yourself to become a far better leader for others. There's going to be a lot more coming. These are from Laurie Rudiman. So my friends, without further ado, let me introduce you to her, my friend, and now yours. Her name is Laurie Rudiman. Laurie, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Oh, well, I'm super pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. We are the ones pleased. Rather than me beginning with the introduction, why don't you begin by introducing yourself as if you're meeting someone at a dinner party. So they say to you, Laurie, uh, what do you do for a living? How would you respond to that these days? 
you know, what a complicated question. I haven't been to a dinner party in like two years. So now I'm a little nervous, but I would say I'm Lori Rudiman. I used to work in human resources and I pivoted to become a writer and a speaker and an entrepreneur. I focus on the world of work, but I'm mostly a teacher. I teach people how to thrive in their jobs. And when I'm not doing my job, which is often because I'm not really driven by work, I'm driven by other things. I volunteer, I foster cats and dogs, and I try to get out in my local community and make a difference. So that's what really drives me to do the work that I do. You got to get paid to then donate that money to the causes you love. And that's kind of my thing in this world. So yeah, that's how I introduce myself. Well, I hope you go to a dinner party soon because that, that is a cool introduction. And I always think a great introduction is when people want to follow you know, your the period behind your final statement with the question, tell me more, tell me more. So let's talk about more. But rather than looking forward toward the dogs or the cats or the work or the authorship or the book or anything else that you have going on, let's back the train all the way up. Where, where did you grow up? What part of the country? I grew up in Chicago and I was born to a very young mother. We're 20 years apart and my parents were married, but shortly thereafter they separated and they were on this roller coaster relationship for about a decade. And when they weren't together, we lived with my grandmother and my mother's younger sisters in this teeny tiny little bungalow on the Northwest side of Chicago. And so while I'm a corporate nomad, I've lived all over the world. Where, wherever I am at any given moment, you can kind of hear my Chicago accent and it cracks me up. Don't ask me to say the word like ch challenge because when I'm really saying it, I say challenge, challenge. It's like terribly embarrassing. So I'm a Chicago girl at heart. Right. Well, I'm a St. Louis man. So we'll have plenty of sports references throughout this podcast. I'm looking forward to that already. Talk, talk about some formative experiences from childhood. What, what began to shape you into this spirit-led, generous learner that continues to impact, uh, you know, halfway point through your life. But what were some of the stories in the early days that formulated you into the lady you became? Well, I was born into a family where most of the men leave at any given point. The divorce rate is right now, other than myself and my brother, a hundred percent. So the men often leave and the women are left to take care of children. And they repeat these patterns over and over again. And then they try to go to work and have all these troubles at work. And they're just generally miserable. And so at a very early age, I just learned this idea that we fix the world by fixing ourselves first. And no matter where I am, if something's going wrong, I am ultimately accountable for how I act in the world. And I saw this by watching people who are totally and completely miserable, not addressing the real issue and going from relationship to relationship or job to job, looking for something externally when they were you know, emotionally or spiritually bankrupt and had to do a lot of work. So I think seeing that, seeing a high divorce rate, high marriages that go nowhere, you know, children just born, you know, like suddenly someone's got a kid, I think that makes an impact on you. And for me and my younger brother, we drew a line in the sand and we said no more with our generation. And I am very proud to say that, you know, I broke the divorce thing so far, you know, 20 years marriage and my brother married his high school sweetheart. So, you know, I think out of like chaos and turbulence came this real desire to like plant some roots and, you know, find a partner in this world and do the work on ourselves. You know, whether we're talking, Lori, about addiction or repeating behaviors from our parents and grandparents and generations leading up to that, 
normally we become like those who, who we follow. And yeah. so I'm curious, was there an example in your neighborhood or a teacher, pastor, rabbi, coach, somebody that you're like, my brother and I, we may not have had the perfect proper examples at home, but we saw something that we strive to be more like in this individual. Yeah, you know, I can't speak for my brother, but for me, um, I had a period of time where my mother was married to a man who didn't like me very much. And so I went to go live with my father and I got a high school boyfriend during this period. And my high school boyfriend's family couldn't have been more normal and more amazing and more awesome. And whatever he did, they were like, just follow him, you know, like follow his example. So I learned about this thing called the SAT and the ACT. And I was a gifted child, but nobody thought to tell me about these things. And so I took the SAT and ACT and did very well, graduated from high school early and went off to university and followed my boyfriend. And instead of his family thinking, uh oh, this is toxic, they were so warm and so encouraging. And I'm still to this day, forever grateful that I had that good family influence in my life. That's so good. So you, you end up going to a community, to a college I'm very familiar with, because it is in my own backyard, Webster University. What was it about Webster that, uh, that you were attracted to? Yeah, you know, um, growing up in Chicago, it was this big environment that I had busy city. And for me, I thought St. Louis would be a little bit smaller and a little quieter. I was wrong about that. St. Louis is a thriving city, but the actual school I went to is on this very cute, quaint campus in Webster Groves, a community that you know very well. And I was just given an opportunity to learn in these old Victorian buildings and study with people who previously taught at Stanford and Harvard and had this wonderful humanities background. And it really taught me the power of storytelling. They came in with their own stories. They brought literature to life and encouraged me to see beyond this really impoverished way that I had grown up and to see the potential in myself. So much so that I had a professor who encouraged me at one point when I was thinking about dropping out because I had so much student debt. She said, don't drop out. You will never go back if you drop out. In fact, I think you ought to do a semester abroad in London. And it was a game changer. She was absolutely right. It took me then further away from the trauma, from the family of origin yeah. and gave me this experience that set me on a course to do international business and to make friends overseas. And it was just a wonderful suggestion. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. Why human resources? Well, you know, I did graduate from Webster with quite a bit of debt and I asked around and said, oh gosh, I need to find a job. And someone said, you know what, go into HR just initially, you'll see the entire organization, the good, the bad, the ugly, maybe you'll end up in marketing or maybe you'll end up in sales, but HR is a great entree to the world of work. And they were right, except that I'm well suited to deconstruct the world of work. You know, I like people telling their stories about work. I'm fascinated about it for my own family. And so it was just natural to kind of piece everything together, especially in the hiring process and help people quite honestly, just change their lives. You worked, if, if I'm getting this all right, Leaf yeah. Candy, is that right? Back in like the mid nineties? I did, do you know what that is? Tell me about it. Well, it was a candy factory that was the old Switzer licorice candy factory, which is like a former competitor to Twizzlers. And they made both red and black licorice there. And it had been purchased by a conglomerate inside of a conglomerate and eventually went on to be Hershey chocolate. But in this factory where I worked, my very first job in human resources, they made 
Switzer, the licorice. They made good and plenty. Have you had a good and plenty lately? Absolutely. This, this is a <laughs> business. So if you're not loyal to the, the folks that employ in, in our own backyard, then there's no loyalty in you. So yes, I've had a good and plenty. For sure. They also made chuckles, which I had never had, but will, and I don't have any fillings. I'm lucky I don't, but we'll pull out a filling if you let it. So I walk into this candy factory and it's 24 seven operation. They're pumping out the sugar back in the nineties and it's also unionized. And there wasn't necessarily a war for talent, but there's always a war for talent in these jobs. Like you always need to get people into a factory. That's just the life of a factory. And so we were pulling immigrants who were fresh, literally off the plane from Bosnia, a war-torn environment. They were doctors and lawyers in Bosnia. They moved to St. Louis and we're like, guess what? We got a job for you, pay $7 an hour, come on over. So it was a real, international eclectic strange environment but isn't that what human resources resources is i mean it's always diverse it's always crazy and chaotic and you know if you do it right you get to meet people who are different than you so this is in the mid 90s you go on to Monsanto, which is now part of bear this wonderful organization here in st louis as well eventually spread your wings even a little bit farther than that end up at pfizer yeah and although we could spend maybe might <laughs> a lot of time talking about all these things. I'm curious, in 07, 08, you decide to leave Pfizer. And the reason for it is um, it's worth sharing. So why'd you leave Pfizer? Thank you. Well, I was feeling caught up in my own career and not in a great way. I was tired. I was depleted. I was playing a political game that I could never quite win. And the more I tried to be that HR director, to be someone on the fast track, it's almost like the more they saw me as this needy little girl and told me to calm down. Like I was going all over the world, delivering terrible news for Pfizer at that time, laying people off, really affecting individuals and their families and their lives. And there was something about me that Pfizer knew, which was that I was compassionate. I was empathetic. I was a little bit vulnerable. I felt people's pain and they, as my mother says, perfectly engineered me to go do this job. But I did it willingly because I had student loans to pay because I thought, you know, I need the money. I had all these excuses like everybody else as to why I couldn't put myself first and take control of my career. And so one night at an airport, I don't know, I was drinking Pepsi and eating Starburst like so many of us do for dinner between flights or used to do. And I was reading a celebrity magazine, looking at all these people with better lives than me who are terrible people and wondering why do they get to put themselves first? And I made a pact with myself that I read about in the book that no more, I would do things differently. So I went on a journey of self-leadership, focusing on my well-being, of learning, and ultimately of learning how to take better risks. Mm -hmm. So I had this moment right around the Great Recession, which is terrible timing, that I had to go and do something else. When some of our listeners hear, uh, I needed to put myself first. Yeah. The very first thing some of us might think is, wow, that's so selfish. That is so <laughs> selfish. Tell us why it's not. Sure. Well, throughout the dawn of history, important people, successful people, people who matter have realized that it's important to put themselves first in order to do right for other individuals. You know, you think about anybody who's ever done anything in this world of note, and they have not done it on four hours of sleep while eating food from their toddler's plate. 
They are planned, they are skillful, they work out, they sleep, they exercise, they nourish themselves, their mind, their body, their spirit, they take care of themselves financially so that they can do great things for other people. So once I started to see this pattern in my life of executives, of CEOs, of celebrities, of corporations always putting themselves first, you know, Pfizer, a great company, always has money for innovation, even when they're laying people off. Why is that? Well, Pfizer puts its mission first. And once I got that, I didn't quit my job right away. There's no way I could afford to do that, but I can start to put the pieces together to give myself a little more competitive advantage to change my life and hopefully impact other people positively. You mentioned almost like as an aside, four things that you began to learn and discern and then ultimately write about. The very first thing I believe is this idea of accountability, this idea yeah. of investing in yourself so that you can become a far better leader yourself, That's not right. only for That's yourself, right. but for others. Talk well, about the value of that. Sure. Well, self-leadership is on display all over the world. You know, there are people like um, Nelson Mandela who believed in nonviolence and no matter how he was treated before he was the first black president of South Africa, always said, I'm going to treat people with respect and dignity. I am responsible for my own experience in this world. I am steadfast. I am emotionally balanced. I am going to choose how I show up. And, you know, I'm no Nelson Mandela and neither are most people, right? But I think about whether it's Michael Jordan or, you know, Sarah Blakely, there are these amazing entrepreneurs in the world who are constantly focused on making sure they're right they're accountable. They're doing the work on them for themselves, on themselves, so that they can do other things for other people. And so this idea of self-leadership was so important to me because for years I ran this playbook in HR where I would teach a training and whether why, wonder why other people weren't picking up on it. We as adults learn through our own mistakes, learn through our own experiences. And ultimately, when we decide to take ownership of our lives, we're learning this important, of self, important lesson of self-leadership and it's just transformative. Right behind that, you talked about wellness, which is so common, whether you're in the HR world or the world itself. We all are, are into wellness right now. I mean, are scrolling we Netflix And are on social we? media and eating poorly and drinking too much and sleeping too little and everything else. So talk about why wellness matters and actually give us some ideas on how we can opt into wellness going forward. Yeah. You know, when I worked in human resources, I was responsible for putting on these 5k programs, you know, or company walks. And had I ever run a 5k before? Absolutely not. That was not a thing I had done. Um, did I even want to do a walk? No. And yet I felt compelled to like step into this fake example of leadership and to participate in these wellness programs that I really was not equipped to do. So for me, wellness is a choice to ensure balance and body, mind, and spirit. So first you have to make that choice through self-leadership. Do I want to be healthy? Do I want to be emotionally resilient? Do I want to be steadfast? Do I want to have energy to tackle the world? And then for ideas on how to do it, well, my goodness, it starts with setting boundaries. It starts with making sure that you own your time in as much as you can, when it's possible to do the things you need to do to fuel your body in the way that it needs and to fuel your spirit and your soul in the way that they need to accomplish great things in the world. So for me, what did that look like? Well, when I worked at Pfizer, I was always a victim to the calendar. 
right? You know, oh my God, I can't possibly work out. I can't possibly take that swimming lesson that I want to take because I don't have any time. But it turns out so much of our days are wasted. And I know this because I'm on the internet all day, every day myself, looking at people on TikTok and Instagram and posting memes and, you know, five minutes here, 10 minutes there starts to add up. But it really does start with setting that boundary of making sure that you're comfortable saying yes or no to a meeting or yes or no to a request of your time. And that comes just through practice, right? You practice in the small moments to nail it in the big moments. So you don't tell your boss, sorry, I can't do this important meeting, but you practice peer to peer. You ask, does this need to be a meeting? Do I need to be here? Or, you know, I'm sorry, John, you're always five minutes late for meetings. Could we schedule this at a different time so that you can show up on time? I really respect your calendar and I know you respect mine. There are ways to start to manage this. So you can actually schedule your time and schedule the good stuff in your day. That's what I think. That's what I do. That's what I coach. That's what I teach. And it takes some rigor and it takes some practice and it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. And, you know, you come out of the HR world, you speak into the corporate world, but this is applicable in the world itself. So for the ladies and gentlemen listening right now who are exhausted, exhausted, working what seems like two jobs, dealing with kids and roommates and, and parents and life and politics, and just the world is coming at them a million miles an hour. And there is no time for wellness. And there are no boundaries to set up because I have to say yes to these things. How do we begin to take back our time and focus our attention on the things that ultimately lead to true wellness? So this is a message in my book. If you're someone who says, there's no way I can do it, I can't, I cannot. You are stuck in a form of learned helplessness and no coach, no therapist, no rabbi, no priest is ever going to change your mind. We fix work in this world by fixing ourselves first. So it's up to you to take that first step of self-leadership and say, enough is enough. I have to try. You know, I spent a lot of years trying to get people to try performance improvement plans in my own family, believing people could be different and individuals have to make that choice for themselves. So when someone engages me as a coach, I assume they're ready to change. And if they're not, I don't take them on as a client. You have to be ready for that moment in your life for things to be different because nothing changes until you change. That is the wisdom of the ages, right? And it happens yes. to be accurate. So I just, I wanted to say that because there are so many people who are like, I can't, I can't give me the magic formula. I'm like, guess what? You're going to be disappointed. There is no magic formula. It starts with you. I have a friend and we've ha had him on the podcast, Father Tom. Father Tom runs a clinic to help people who have drinking addictions. And he'll only take people who answer yes to this question. The question is, have you had enough? And if it is any answer other than yes, he says, you know, come back later, come back okay. later. And when they come back with the answer, yes, it is amazing to the degree that he is able to help these people help themselves navigate the challenges and the complexity and the addictions of their life. But until people choose this, that's why I love the pathway you're guiding them down. Until you choose to opt in, no coach, no rabbi, no pastor, no priest, no friend, no spouse, no enemy can help guide you forward in the right direction, which by the way, lends itself to the third piece you brought up, which is continual lifelong learning. Yeah. Why, why is that so vitally important for us as individuals? I am so passionate about learning because as I say often, when you're learning, you're growing and when you're growing, you're thriving. And that's what life is all about. And for me, at those moments in my career, when I was sad, depressed, 
anxious, blaming other people, feeling like a victim. And believe me, I had a decade of that. So I know where I come from. I wasn't learning a dang thing. Not at all. I was maybe picking up pieces here or there, but I wasn't challenging myself. I wasn't, you know, in the spirit of continuous learning. And so I used to think, well, learning has to be this formal program. It has to be this arduous thing. First of all, I want to tell people, you don't have to wait for permission to learn. If you wake up in the morning and you take a breath, you have a responsibility to learn something new. And the world is your oyster. It doesn't have to cost a lot of money. I mean, we have University of YouTube, right? There's Google, there's LinkedIn learning. You know, there, there are a million things. You like podcasts, you can learn from someone on a different team at your, well, your virtual office. Now there are a million ways to do this and they're all uniquely tailored to you. So it's important to figure out some of your deficiencies in this world, some of the things you're lacking then maybe just go spy on someone and right. learn from them. I always say that's the best way to get a mentor at first. Go find someone you admire and watch their moves and copy a few of them. Like see what happens if you change the game just by being curious about what's happening around you. So I don't know, John, I mean, I think learning is again, one of those things where you can't force somebody to do it. All you can do is live by example, which is what I'm trying to do and show people that when they get curious, they're on fire. Let's stay on fire for a moment longer because the fourth piece along your journey forward is around risk-taking and around, I think you describe it as failing less, succeeding more. <laughs> yes. is, that, is that right? <laughs> yes. Talk I mean, we're all going to fail, right? <laughs> There's no avoiding that in this world, but I want to fail smarter. I want to stop making the same mistakes over and over again. And so years ago, a friend of mine taught me this thing called the pre-mortem. Yeah. It was originally thought of by Stoics, these old dudes, right? Who were just trying to figure out how do I stop making mistakes over and over again? So Aristotle, Seneca, all of them, they would think, all right, I wanna do this thing. I'm gonna look at in the future and I'm gonna try to predict how I'm going to fail. And then in modern times, there's a professor by the name of Dr. Gary Klein, who's been teaching this to corporations before they launch you know, a space shuttle, before they build a bridge. How is this going to fail? Let's bake this into our standard operating procedures. You know, flight, like uh, pilots, I don't know why I'm struggling for that word. Pilots do this all the time before they get on a plane. They think, how is this plane going to go down? Like they're doing the pre-mortem. So why can't we do that for ourselves? And so before you do anything important in this world, go on a family trip, paint your kitchen, apply for a job, flash forward and ask yourself, how are you going to fail? Just write a list down, set a timer for 60 seconds. And when you get that list, you have gold because you can fix those things and improve your chance of success in this world by over 30%. It's amazing. It's a phenomenal tool. I love it. I teach it all over the world. And the pre-mortem brings me a lot of joy because now I get to fail in new and more interesting ways. Dude, we could spend an hour talking about the pre-mortem. It, it, it is <laughs> such a cool concept. And I think that... I think it's not new to most people because we spend our lives thinking about ways we're going to fail. But you said something else. You said set a timer. Yeah. Make a list of things that are going to trip you up, whether it's uh, every night when I come home from a long day of work, my spouse and I get in an argument. Okay. So now how, what, what has led to that and how do you make sure that doesn't happen? How does this That's happen right. at work and how do you ensure this doesn't happen? So you make a timer you write down the things that are going to lead you to trip yourself forward. And then you figure out ways to solve against that. I think it's just brilliant. 
Thank you. You know, the timer is so important because you don't want to go into a shame spiral like we're grown people. We don't have time for that. But a minute is enough to write down the silly, the serious, the inconsequential and the very consequential ways we're going to fail. You know, if you're part of this great resignation and you're looking for work, chances are if you're an adult, you've applied for a job and you've been turned down, you've blown an interview. Well, let's deconstruct that. How am I going to blow this interview? Well, maybe I'm not a great storyteller. Maybe I get too sweaty. Maybe I make terrible eye contact. You start to write, maybe I don't know what to wear, right? You know, like I, I'm not good with fashion. You write all these goofy things down just for a minute and you can start to tackle all these individual glitches before you do the thing you're gonna do. It's just such a smart way to go through this world and it gives you an actionable plan for your anxiety as opposed to John doing what most people do, which is just going to bed, ruminating, struggling to fall asleep and then failing and beating themselves up about it. Like, let's, let's try. Boy, if I could retitle my book anything, it would be like, let's try. Because <laughs> that's what this book is all about. Like, let's just try some new things. What have you got to lose? Why not you? You know? I like the title of the book, Betting on You. <laughs> we can read that in one of two ways. One is you are betting on the reader, which is the way I originally read it, actually, or okay. probably the way you intended. Make the investment in yourself. Make the investment in yourself. And to me, that makes an awful lot of sense in life. Yeah. And yet some of the investments sometimes insist that there is an, a return on that capital, whether that's yeah. time or money or resources. You also write in your book near the end about the arrival fallacy. Very, very cool concept. What, what is the arrival fallacy? Well, the arrival fallacy is something that I read about in Forbes. And so there's a citation in the book to the original article. And it's this moment in time where you get what you've been asking for. And you're like, is that all there is? So you get promoted and you start to work with people who are new and you're like, is that what this is really all about? And it's like, yeah, that's all there is. If that's all you are, if that's all you bring to the table, if you're in this passive role where you're waiting for others to change your life, it's never going to happen. And you're going to get to that CMO position or chief sales officer job, head of revenue, whatever it is you're going for. And you're going to be like, well, this kind of sucks. And it's like, yeah, dude, it sucks because you suck. It's time to work on ourselves. Again, we fix work by fixing ourselves first. And oftentimes it has nothing to do with work and everything to do with, you know, family of origin trauma or issues in our current relationships or a mismatch of living between our values and the way we show up every day. So these are the things we need to work on. Work is just, you know, a lagging indicator of unhappiness. Mm. Well, what that lagging indicator has shown us recently is that I am unhappy. And yeah. so a whole lot of individuals right now are looking or actively leaving their work. The great resignation, you mentioned it a moment ago, before you and I started recording though, you said, gosh, I would love to talk about that. I would love to just talk about the great resignation. So Lori, I'm gonna be quiet for a moment and I'll allow you to first tell us why is the great resignation occurring? And secondly, what advice might you have for those considering hopping into it? Sure. Well, John, I don't know about you, but early in my career, I went from job to job thinking, oh, this new company is going to rock my world. And then I'd spend like six months to a year there. And I'd be like, oh, it's the same old date that I've been on historically, just somebody else dressed up in a fresh dress, you know, like it's just lipstick on a pig. And so for me, I'm a little worried that people are expressing their dissatisfaction by leaving an organization instead of 
pausing a moment, looking at who they are, what their values are, actually considering what the job does for them in a positive way as well, before then going out into the marketplace. The great resignation is going to turn into nothing but a great talent swap where, you know, Jojo over here goes and works over there and is miserable in six months. And that doesn't benefit our economy. It doesn't benefit our country. And it doesn't benefit like the collective spirit of the world. We need people who are at that intersection of purpose and meaning, which means it takes a little bit of reflection to figure out who you are, what you want in this world, and then to chart a course that way. But Unfortunately, as you know, we're in this moment where there's inflation and people have put up with a lot and somebody dangles another $10,000, $20,000, $50,000 in front of you. How do you say no? But you might want to just take a minute before you say yes. That's all I'm asking because sometimes you just invite some of the more familiar problems in your lives. Like we were just talking about a rival fallacy. That's about to happen for so many people who six months ago, at the beginning of the summer, took another job. They're about to realize it's not the job, it's them. So I'm teetering between going in two different directions, and I think we'll go the personal path first and then and then wrap up in a moment with a professional. You mentioned a moment ago before they leap, they've got to spend some time figuring out who they are what really matters, where they want to go. So the question is, obviously, how do we discern whether we are 24 listening to the Live Inspired podcast and fired up for life and promise, or we are midway through 65, 75, 85 years old and still, still trying to discern who we are and why we are and what really matters. How do we begin to figure that out for ourselves? Well, we don't figure it out alone. Because again, what got us here, as Marshall Goldsmith says, won't get us there to the promised land, to the future, to the thing we want. So to just do it by yourself in a vacuum is very dangerous because we are our own worst coaches, as I've learned in my own life. So find someone you can confide in, a spouse, a partner, you know, rabbi, priest, anybody in your community, get five, 10, 15 minutes, share the problem. Let them know that you have a decision to make or that you're struggling and see if they have any advice. The other thing I want to share is that the EAP, the Employee Assistance Program that so many of us still have in corporate America is one of the most underutilized benefits out there. Yeah. And when someone is struggling at work, it's almost like the last thing they think to do is to go to the EAP when that should be one of the first and frankly, cheapest things they can do to have a conversation about who they are and what they want in this world. But again, I think the core message here is you can't do it alone. I mean, yeah, you can buy books, you can get on a pathway. But for me, when I buy a book, it's to really get to understand the author and potentially connect with her on LinkedIn and to learn from her in real life and to have a conversation, even if it's just a digital conversation, which is what I encourage my readers to do. Like, don't just buy my book and put it on a shelf pass it along, donate it to a library, and then connect with me. And if I can be helpful, I will absolutely be helpful to you in your career. Well, you, you mentioned this idea of digital connection. So maybe that's where we go next. In March of 2020, now 22 months ago or so coming up on it, it was almost fun when you hopped onto a Zoom call or a Teams call, or you figured out, you know, how do I reach through and oh, I can see you. How fun that is that your house? And wow, that was fun. Then April came and then May, and then May 2021, and now November 2021. And what was fun and novel for a season is now uh passe mm -hmm. and actually exhausting and grueling. And 
although there is hope on the horizon, there's also this sense of hopelessness that it's just going to stay like this and it's going to be like this, like the, the vaccine ugh, for all the promise that we had 40 years ago, there are some significant challenges that remain yeah, for sure, society. Sure. So as we deal with the workforce and grandparents and children, and they've been taught like this in school now for a while, who are just virtually fatigued, what encouragement would you give to us who are that way? And as we move toward a hybrid market going forward, what, what's going to be the way to do this effectively? Well, you know, most of the exhaustion that people feel, and I mean, it's legit, these cameras, the social platforming, all of it is exhausting, I think is really just a general ennui in this world. And so why not focus on that? Why not figure out why am I so tired? Why am I not sleeping well? Why is my workload insane? Why am I never leaving the house? Why don't I have any hobbies? <laughs> like, these are all the questions I asked myself well before COVID, because the ennui that many are feeling before COVID or during COVID existed before COVID. Like this is just, I think, a general malaise that people are feeling en masse. We're having a more honest conversation about it. And I think if we start to set some standards and have boundaries and have honest conversations with the people we work with and for, we do ourselves a favor. We do ourselves some good because we can potentially change the game for how we interact at work but maybe we can also clear a path for other people. And this idea of being of service is one of the things that has gotten me through this pandemic. Like, yeah, it stinks. I didn't get to see my brother who, by the way, was immunocompromised because he's battling colon cancer randomly during COVID, right? I didn't get to see him for 20 months, but how can I be of service? How can I raise money and funds and awareness? These are the things I was doing in COVID outside of my job to keep myself sane, to be happy, and to have a sense of purpose. So, you know, I get what you're saying, like, it's exhausting and tiring, but I think people are just exhausted and tired in general, and it's time to take a little bit more control over that. I had a radio interview yesterday, so I was brought onto this show, and the gentleman told me that his job requires him to be uh, suffocated, as using his terminology, suffocated under social media, suffocated. And I said to him, I, I think you're wrong. You know, I, I think you're choosing this. I don't think you have to opt in where you are suffocating under the, the, under the waters of social media and mainstream media and everything else. But I think many of us, Laurie, feels if uh, we're just staying knowledgeable, it's just yeah. part of it. And then we lean into Netflix because everybody else is. And so we want to be part of the water cooler conversation, at least virtually. So we feel as if we have to keep doing these things. And in doing so, hmm. we lose our we lose our energy. And you, yeah. you use the term being a lifelong learner and doing things you haven't done before and picking up new habits. And if we keep doing these same things, we're we're drinking from the fire hose that is not ours to drink from in the first place. So well said. You know, during COVID, I have been coaching executive leaders who are burned out, and they'll say to me, "Oh." I'm on teams all day long or blah, blah, you know, like, like they're victims of these, you know, $500,000 a year jobs. They're just so tired. And I get it. Those are legitimate feelings, but you have a hobby. So one woman I'm working with said, no, I don't have a hobby. I don't have time for a hobby. I'm like, why don't you try to connect with something you actually enjoyed in your past? And for her, that was ice skating. She started ice skating again fell back in love with it. I'm so pleased. So now, even when her job is exhausting and terrible and tiring and social media stinks and she's beat, she still has ice skating. Another guy I worked with, 
I, I'm a vegetarian, but he decided he was going to smoke meat. <laughs> That's like something that brought him joy. I'm like, you have at it, dude, smoke your meat, you know? So now <laughs> he's got a plan. He's got a weekend ritual around it. You know, I, I don't really understand anything about smoking meat, but it brings him joy. And I think that's the thing about adulthood. There are going to be these difficult times where we're exhausted. We feel like victims. Everything's going wrong. We have to be responsible. We have to be self-leaders and find deliberately these moments of joy. And if mm -hmm. you can do that, you're living a good life. If you're smoking meat, there's nothing wrong with your life. <laughs> Put that on a bumper sticker. See what, <laughs> what happens as you're rolling around Raleigh, North Carolina, or St. Louis, Missouri. With If you're smoking meat... There ain't nothing wrong with your life. Things are fine, dude. Things are just fine. <laughs> you know, things, I, I do think things are better than we believe and improving. So this is very good news, whether you are a vegetarian like you are or smoking meat like one of your clients. One of the things we did back in March of 2020 is uh, recognizing it would be difficult going forward is we picked up the hobbies of the kids. And so for like Grace, my little daughter, Grace, she wants to learn how to play the, play the piano. And so I made it my hobby and now hers to learn how to play the piano. So she would have her little Kool-Aid. I'd have a glass of wine at the end of a day. We'd open up YouTube, watch the notes in front of us and learn whatever the hit song was and key by key, exhale some of the angst and anxiety and stress from the day. And then in, and then breathe in some of the joy of not only togetherness, but creating something that we did not know how to do the day before. Yeah. What a beautiful experience and creating a beautiful memory for someone outside of yourself is such a gift for your daughter. I think COVID, when we did it wrong, made us hyper-focus on ourselves and you know, our health and our neuroses and everything that was wrong. But again, if you're operating in an act of service for your daughter, for your neighbor, for your broader community, you're changing the game and you're actually changing your own storyline. So I just... I cannot love on your example enough. It's so beautiful. And I would love to talk to your daughter in 20 years and ask her, what does she remember about COVID? Because she'll remember the masks, right? She'll remember some of the chaos, but I bet she remembers the piano. She may or may not, but her dad certainly will. And we, <laughs> we honestly have had a blast. We're not much better now than we were 20 months ago, but we know a lot more songs and how to peck them into the little keyboard in front of us. That's right. Uh, That's right. You know, that kind of came from actually my dear friend, Bill Murray and Groundhog Day, this miserable Chicago guy who hates life and Pennsylvania and the weather and everything else and is stuck in Groundhog Day and ultimately only liberated because everyone kept referring to um, COVID as Groundhog Day was only liberated when he embraced it, That's embraced right. piano, embraced right. dance lessons, embraced service, embraced making people's days. And I think that's when we pop out of this monotony misery of our lives to recognize, wow, it's it's good and it's getting better. So uh, when, when people bet on themselves and they actually check out your book and your work, what do you hope that they might ultimately receive in their lives? Well, I hope they get a little bit of peace and comfort knowing that the struggle they may feel at work or in their careers is only temporary and it's universal. And that discomfort that you feel that Sunday scary about going to work on Monday morning. I don't know how I'm going to do it. It's just a moment in time. And I was the queen of the Sunday scaries. And now I wouldn't say I embrace my week, but I certainly believe that I have a sense, a purpose, a mission in this world. I work at that intersection of purpose and meaning. And 
you know, when I'm not doing that, I've got other cool stuff in my life. So things are okay. So I live by example. I tell a lot of stories in the book about other people. It's not just about me. And I really hope to offer a shining light in these dark times. Awesome. It is a shining light. And these can feel sometimes like very dark times. So it's a worthy investment of time and investment. Lori, we have seven questions that we guide all of our amazing guests through as we wrap up every show. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. The pre-mortem on these is my very first guest ever was my mom. And I'm telling you right now, my mom made it through, some astronauts have made it through, some presidents and authors have made it through. I have every bit of confidence that you will do likewise. So here we go. All right. Question number one, Lori, what is the most impactful book that you have ever read? I read a book called Ham on Rye by Charles Bukowski, and it taught me to write a sentence. Tell me more. Well, Charles Bukowski is an old beatnik writer, uh, had a lot of challenges, alcoholism, told these stories about working class people, but his sentences were very much Raymond Carver-esque, almost a Hemingway in that regard. He said what he wanted to say, and he yeah. didn't dance around. And in that, his story emerged. It was plain spoken. It was clear. And I thought, man, this Charles Bukowski, he's on to something. And he wrote some really great poetry as well. So yeah, reading Ham on Rye changed my life. That's awesome. Never heard of it before. And I look forward to checking it out. When, when you said, taught me how to write one sentence, there's another author named Annie Dillard who wrote a book called Bird by Bird. And it essentially is, how do you write a book? And it's like, well, sentence by sentence, that's all. And so how do you well track said, your life? Sentence right? by sentence. And so that's the way you ultimately do anything of, of meaning. The mm -hmm. second question is looking back on your childhood, growing up in the Northwest side of Chicago, a Cubs fan and a Bears fan and a deep dish pizza fan. What characteristic that was positive did you possess then mm -hmm. that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Well, I think there's something really gritty about people who are raised in Chicago. And I was definitely gritty when I was younger, very working class. And sometimes I can be a little too posh and my husband will look at me and be like, who do you think you are? You grew up in a home that was the size of our basement. What are you doing here, Rudiman? So I definitely uh, wish I were a little grittier and not so fancy sometimes. Mm. If your home caught fire and your pets and your husband are out safely and you have an opportunity to run back in and grab one item, just one thing, what would you race back outside that house with? We have a photo from the local newspaper when my husband graduated from college and his dad is hanging a sign up that says, congratulations, Kenny. And it reminds me of my former father-in-law who passed away. It reminds me of that beautiful bond that he and my husband had. I, I just love this photo and I would rush back in to get that. That's so sweet. Uh, thank you for sharing that. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, Chicago, Illinois, St. Louis, Webster Groves Day, and have a long conversation with anyone, living or deceased. Who do, you, who do you want to be seated right next to? Oh, gosh, I can see why you mentioned that there were astronauts and all in your mother who <laughs> did this quiz and it was challenging. You know, I, I think I would want to be seated next to someone like uh, a for me, it would be Gloria Steinem. I would want to know, like, you know, you've got this reputation out there and you've seen a lot of history. Give me the backstory. Like, what did it take to do what you did in the world? And what are your regrets, right? I would turn into a podcast host. And right. what are you most proud of? I, I would want to do a podcast with Gloria Steinem. Yeah. 
you know, when you're going through these questions with me, my, my mother who was guest zero, zero, zero on the, the live inspired podcast afterwards was like, like hitting me during these questions. Cause it was not on video at that time. It was only on audio. And she's like, afterwards, why would she not have told me that these were coming? John? <laughs> she knew she could handle what she knew, but these were a little bit out of the blue for mom. So mom was a big listener. She certainly listened to your show and for you, what is the best advice that your mother, your father, some leader, some teacher at Webster University, a friend, maybe Kenny, what's the best advice you've ever received? Well, I was going to tell you something, but it's going to be a little strange. Are you ready? Come on. On TV, I saw Walter Payton being interviewed by a newscaster named Mark Jean Greco. And remember, I'm sports topical. I wouldn't say I'm the most raving Bears fan, but Walter Payton said, you know, in this world, I don't expect anything and I'm never disappointed. And I sat back in my chair at 10 years of age and went, oh yeah, I see that. And so Walter Payton is in my head all the time. Like if you don't expect anything, you won't be disappointed. And it's so important. It reminds me that, you know, I need to show up. I need to produce. It's not about expecting things because when I do expect things, you know, a parade, congratulations, all of these things in this world, I am often disappointed. So yeah, Walter Payton. Hmm. Thanks for asking that. Wow, we're going into the vault. Yeah, I love it. And I love Walter Payton and, and his career and his life and what he taught us both in his death and his life. So what, what, an, what an example he was. Definitely. What advice would you whisper into your 20-year-old self? I would tell myself to take it easy. I'm definitely wound tight but I was wound tighter back then. And I thought the weight of the world was on my shoulder. I didn't have permission to make a mistake. I took things that were the safe bet instead of doing the pre-mortem. I would just tell myself, take it easy. Like part two of that is take a beat, you know, slow down. It's okay. Stop rushing into these things. And, you know, I'm still learning that lesson today, if I'm being honest. I appreciate the honesty. And it's going to lead us to the seventh and final Live Inspired question for Laurie Rudiman. Laurie, it has been said that all great people and HR leaders and spouses and friends and leaders and servants can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? I would like it to say she tried. <laughs> Earth, I tried, I tried my friend. <laughs> She certainly tried. So, uh, hey, we want to thank you for trying, for growing up in a very difficult circumstance and desiring and then ultimately living into a very different, radically better way to live, to serve, to inspire, to encourage. It has uh, it's been a joy getting to know you in your podcast and your book and now today in this interview. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And listen, stay safe and be well. Thank you, Laurie. My friends, that is Laurie Rudiman. My name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Live inspired. Well, my friends, I told you on the front side of the conversation that you are going to need that pen, need that journal, and that you are going to love your time with Laurie Rudiman. She shared a lot, but here are a few of my favorite takeaways. I'm sure you wrote these down as well, or at least they stirred something within your hearts when you heard them. We fix the world by fixing ourselves first. That was big. You fix the world. Yeah, that's a good worthy cause, but how do you begin moving toward that? You, you got to make your bed. You got to start at home. 
you got to take care of things in your own space. Then you can take care of those that you are called to love in your household and then your neighbors. And then you move forward from there. So it starts at home. That's a great point to always remind ourselves. And then another thing that I wrote down during our conversation is this. You don't have to quit your job to find the satisfaction you seek and to recognize that so frequently that job is not about work. It's an inside job. It's something we got to work on ourselves first. She challenged us during the conversation to fail. It's okay to fail. Just fail smarter. Learn the lessons and become a better version of, of yourself afterwards. I love Laurie's drive to become a continuous lifelong learner and to find, this is important, find a mentor. Identify someone that you look up to, someone that you admire, watch their moves, and copy a few of them. If you're thinking about learning a little more on this topic of embracing where you are, shutting your eyes and imagining what is possible in your life going forward, starting right now, you don't need to shift careers, shift jobs, shift lanes necessarily to get there, but you got to shut your eyes and imagine a different life for yourself. One of my favorite podcasts, and I got all... I got about 440 favorite podcasts, but one of them is with a gentleman named Father Tom Hoare. My dear friend, I call her mom. Okay, that's how close I feel to this woman and to her kids, the Bowler family. So Mary Bowler, this one is for you. But Mary Bowler introduced me to Father Tom Hoare years ago. We had him on our podcast. He's an addiction expert. But more than that, and that's enough right there for those of us struggling with addictions. More than that, this is a gentleman who is going to challenge you to live a far better life by answering one simple question. You ready for it? Have you had enough? Have you had enough? And if the answer is yes, if you've had enough, then awesome. Tune in to episode 134 with my dear friend, and now yours. His name is Father Tom Hoare. You're going to love it. So you can take the next step forward in your journey at episode 134 with Tom Horse. So my friends, brothers and sisters, neighbors in St. Louis, around the United States and around the world, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired Podcast family. And I want to remind you that the foundation is firm. The headwinds may be real, but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, this is your friend, John O'Leary. And today is your day. What a gift it is. Live inspired. Healy Companies recognizes that their people are indeed their greatest asset. With a focus on career growth and well-being and safety, Keeley Companies are proud to be a career destination. If you or anyone you know is looking to join a culture unlike any other, let me encourage you right now to apply today and experience the Keeley way. If you want to truly make a difference and be part of an organization that recognizes that difference by investing in you, learn more by checking them out online at keelycompanies.com.